so much easier to learn from other people's experience. As, as you said, from reading these books, I, I tell my readers, you don't have to make the dumb mistakes because I made all of them already. I can warn you, I can keep you from making the stupid mistakes. Um, you'll never be done making mistakes, but you don't have to make the stupid ones. My guest today is Alex Green. Alex is senior editor of the Oxford Communique, which has been ranked as one of the top investment newsletters by Holbert Digest for more than a decade. He is also chief investment strategist for the Oxford Club, the world's largest financial fellowship. He worked as an investment advisor, research analyst, and portfolio manager on Wall Street for 16 years. After developing his extensive knowledge and achieving financial independence, he retired at the age of 43. Alex's research is read by more than 600,000 subscribers that receive his newsletter. He is so widely read and followed because he has a stellar track record and he knows what he's talking about. Alex recently released the revised and expanded second edition of The Gone Fishing Portfolio, Get Wise, Get Wealthy, and Get On With Your Life, a New York Times bestseller. The forward is written by talk show host Bill O'Reilly, who has been a reader of Alex's for years. I recently sat down with Alex to talk about where he sees the price of Bitcoin heading and why most investors don't do well, as well as they should. Okay, Alex, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. I want to tell you it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you last week, and I'm really looking forward to this interview today. You too, Charles. Thanks for having me. You know, your book, and I just want to tell you, I briefed through this book, and you got a lot of really good stuff. The book is called The Gone Fishing Portfolio, Get Wise, Get Wealthy, and Get On With Your Life. This is now your second edition. Your first edition came out in 2008, and it was Correct. a New York Times bestseller? Yes. Wow. And uh, I guess the demand was there for, for this book now, right? Well, I wanted to be able to update the performance of the portfolio with a couple of small changes and uh, sort of flesh out the strategy a little more. So, uh, so yeah, probably a quarter to a third of the book is all new material. Outstanding. And Alex, something which struck me right up the front here, and you, I'm just going to hold this up here for uh, viewers on uh, YouTube who are seeing this, a forward, new forward by Bill O'Reilly. How the heck did you and Bill O'Reilly connect, especially on an investing book? <laughs> Well, um, Bill O'Reilly has been a longtime subscriber to my investment letter, the Oxford Communique. Uh, he had me on the on the O'Reilly Factor back when he was hosting that show and uh, quoted me a few times on the show, things I'd written in my letter and so forth. Um, and a, a couple of years ago, um, we reached out to Bill. I, I sent him an email and said, hey, Hey, Bill, uh, I know you're still a subscriber, and would you have any interest in endorsing my letter? And he said, absolutely. Thanks for thinking of me. Have your people call my people, so to speak. And so that was two years ago. And since then, we've had a great relationship. He's hosted a number of, of webinars where he's, um, he's interviewed me and talked about our various strategies and so forth. And uh, it's been good for us and good for him, too. So uh, great, great relationship we have. Outstanding. So... So what, what struck me about this book, Alex, and we can definitely get into it a little later, but I just want to just uh, jump into this for one second here. Bill O'Reilly has a nice sizable net worth. The average American doesn't have Bill O'Reilly's net worth. Why would a guy like Bill O'Reilly be attracted to you? And why is Main Street America attracted to your investment approach? Well, I, I guess if I had to answer that question in two words, it would be, it, it works. 
the the investment philosophy that everything is built on is battle tested and and uh, has resulted in in good profits in both the expansions and contractions, bull markets and bear markets. Um, you, of course, you don't have to be a high net worth individual like Bill O'Reilly to be an investor these days. There, there's no account minimum uh, investment for most brokerage firms and mutual fund companies. Uh, there's no commissions on stock trades, ETF trades, and so on. So it's never been easier for the average everyday person to become an investor and own a fractional interest in many of the best businesses and fastest growing companies in the world. And Bill knows that he's, he's a, like me, he's an unrepentant capitalist. And, um, and so he's sort of trying to spread the word that uh, obviously if you're willing to work and save and invest, you can earn higher returns in the stock market. And then of course the question is, well, what do you invest in? And that's the, that's what I write. So, Alex, you told me, I think it was 600,000 people subscribed to one of your newsletters in Oxford. Right. Liberty Through Wealth is a, is a free e-letter. And I, I recommend anybody listening who doesn't take it, you can go to libertythroughwealth.com and sign up. And uh, in that e-letter, I'm talking about everything that's happening in the world of politics and business and interest rates and currencies and economics and market activities, individual stocks and so forth. So, so Liberty Through Wealth, yeah. 600,000 subscribers. Amazing. So you've been at this for a long time, Alex. You had a background on Wall Street, which we'll get into just a few minutes. And uh, you're an investment advisor. Uh, you have been writing this, your newsletters for the past decade, more than a decade now. And forget about what investors do right. What does the average guy do wrong? Hmm. Well, I really don't blame the average investor for sort of muddling through. It's, it's a shame that we live in a country where the majority of high schools don't even take, teach basic financial literacy. And so as a result, people graduate from high school and they don't know how to calculate compound interest or what a 401k is or what it means to have an adjustable rate mortgage or why we even have a stock market, which they think of as just some sort of a casino or something. Uh, and so the, the, the first problem that most investors face is just a basic lack of knowledge. Uh, I always say there's a big difference between ignorance and intelligence. You know, I don't care how intelligent we are, we're, we're all ignorant of various things. If, if I had to fix my car engine, I'm totally ignorant of what it would take to fix it. And uh, many smart people are just ignorant of um, investment basics. And so, so, so Liberty Through Wealth is, is one area where I try to make sure that everybody understands that we have these incredible capital markets where businesses come to raise money through either stock offerings or bond offerings and investors who want to put their money uh, to, to work in places where they get a higher rate of return. That's where people come together, people who need money and people who have money to, to invest or to lend. And, uh, that's the most basic. But then beyond that, people, um, they, they don't have any sort of structure to what they're doing. They don't have a philosophy of investing. They don't have a strategy. They don't have criteria for what it is they buy or criteria for when they sell. Uh, and so they jump in and out, maybe making a profit here, taking a loss there. At the end of the year, you know, a lot of times they're just spinning their wheels. They haven't earned much return at all. And certainly they're not beating the market, most of them. So, um, so I'm just trying to show people that there is no one secret to investing, but there's a system. There's there, you know, the principles of wealth creation are well understood, but that doesn't mean that most people understand them. So I'm trying to make them clear to people um, in general, and then give specific investment advice so they can capitalize on those principles. So, like, if I had, if I asked you, what's the number one mistake they make? What would you say it would be? 
Do they trade too much? Do they do they do they go after the latest trend, the latest uh, hot thing? Do they follow dumb things? What do they do wrong? Well, the the first thing that most people don't do right is they don't live within their means, which you need to maximize your income, minimize your outgo while, you know, obviously living your life. I don't, I don't think extreme frugality is the, is the way to become an investor, but most people, first of all, are not saving anything. Then those who are saving, there's, you know, they realize that there's less people invested in the stock market now than there was back before the financial crisis in 2009. So most people are not even invested in stocks. And then the ones who are invested in stocks, like you mentioned, they're tracing, they're chasing hot trends. They're trying to, um, you know, I, I had a woman come the other day and she goes, I, I, she goes, I own Verizon and uh, I'm trying to decide whether to keep it or, or get rid of it. And I said, well, how long have you owned it? She goes, hmm, about eight days now. <laughs> that, let me just say, if that's what you're interested in doing, that's not what I do. I'm not a day trader. A day trader is like trading, you know, it's like coin flipping. Uh, I, I don't do that. I, I, I do have trading services, but they're based on the near-term earnings prospects at the very least of the companies that we buy. So I, I think there's lots of ways that people don't have an underlying philosophy of investing, lots of ways they don't have a coherent strategy. And then, of course, the ideas that they have, you know, if they're good ones, if you, if you buy Apple at 10 o'clock in the morning and sell it at 2 p.m., um, what, what are you really doing? So, um, so it's just sort of, a, again, a lack of knowledge uh, and direction and coherence to what they're doing. So if you would give them one piece of advice, what would that be? Well, well, I probably would give them more than one piece of advice. I wouldn't be making a living if I could give one piece okay. of advice. If, but, if, but, 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 I will, but I can answer that question. What, what, what is the most important thing? Okay. Um, the most important thing was actually revealed by Larry Fink in BlackRock's annual report last year. He said more and more investors have realized that it, it is portfolio construction and not security selection that's responsible for most of your returns. Okay, so what does he mean by that? He means that, well, everyone would like to think that they own the Amazon or the Netflix or the Facebook and that, that pays for their retirement. That doesn't usually happen. What you really have to do is construct a portfolio. You have to, you have to asset allocate and construct a portfolio and that's what provides financial independence over time in the most, I shouldn't say most conservative, but in the least risky, most highest probability of success route is to have an asset allocated portfolio. So portfolio construction is, is uh, number one. And also the, uh, as, as it happens, the, the very subject of the gone fishing portfolio is portfolio construction. So let's get into this book for just a minute. So one thing I do, which most people won't even bother with, and I think simply because I wrote a book also, Getting Started in Value Investing, I really focus on this. I always look to who the author dedicated the book to. Because I know what kind of labor this is to write a book, man. I wouldn't write another book. You'd have to pay me a lot of money. It is just so much work, and it just uh, tears at your gut. And it becomes, it takes all the life for itself. I don't know if that happened to you, but I know since I wrote my book, I don't think I've read it. It's just, it's just, so, it's just so tedious because you want to get everything right. Right. And when I see someone write a dedication and who they dedicate the book to, it means a lot. It means a lot because that really tells you what the author's thinking. And my book, for example, was dedicated to my grandfather. I wrote that he was a man who added value to everything he touched. And your book here is, this book is dedicated to the most inspiring and best man I've ever known, my father, H. Braxton Green. Tell me about that. Well, uh, you know, Warren Buffett's famous for saying that uh, some people win the ovarian lottery and some don't. 
Uh, all of us are very lucky that we were, we were most of the listeners here are lucky that they were born in the West, in, uh, in the secular West, you know, you're not born in some repressive regime in Pakistan or Iran or, or someplace like that, uh, that we were born in the modern times. Uh, and if you happen to be born into a, a family where you have nurturing parents that really care about your upbringing, then, then you have won the ovarian lottery. And, and I knocked it out of the park. I had the good sense to pick the right parents. <laughs> and let me just say, my father, I truly mean he is the best man I've ever known. Just as without ever saying, you should do this, you should do that, don't do this. He, he, he lived his life in a way that I wanted to emulate. And I, I will never be able to live up uh, to the, the image that he's created in my eyes. He, he was, first of all, a fantastic father. I was one of four boys. He was always the Cub Scout leader, the basketball coach, the baseball coach. He, um, he took us out and taught us, you know, how to play every sport and camping and hiking. And, 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 and aside from all that, from, from being a great father, he was a, he was a gentleman. You know, he, if he went to someplace socially, he would never get in an argument with somebody or start up, start talking about politics or, um, I mean, he was always about good humor, good food. He could, he could eat out and talk about that meal for six weeks or six months, you know, um, uh, when the peaches were ripe and he'd have these peaches shipped to him from Georgia, uh, every fall. And he would say, he'd call me up, peaches are in, you know, I'm mean, going to set some peaches aside for you. I mean, he's just that kind of guy. He had, he has a joy for living and a perspective that family is important and whatever second, I don't know what it is because it's so far behind family that uh, he couldn't even tell you, I don't think. But anyway, a great man, great sense of humor, great personality. If you knew him, Charles, believe me, if you talk to this guy for 10 minutes, you would love this guy. Mm -hmm. And you could say I'm biased because I'm his son, but he's just that kind of person that when he walks into a room, he makes everybody laugh. He makes everybody have a good time. Uh, he's not at all interested in impressing anyone with his achievements or how smart he is or whatever. He just wants to know you, make sure you're having a good time, make sure you have a good laugh. And he's just a great guy. So that's, that's why the book is dedicated. And I, this is something I mentioned to you in our brief chat last week. Um, that, that was the last change I made to the book because the, the dedication originally read, this book is in, um, is dedicated to the memory of my father, H. Braxton Green, because when I was finishing up the book, my dad was in hospice care. He's 91 years old, and um, he wasn't eating. He was sleeping most of the day. The hospice nurse says he had maybe two weeks to live, and uh, he was on 13 medications. And after withdrawing all those medications, he made this amazing recovery where he started getting out of bed, started having an appetite. Then he was going around the house with a walker. Now he's going around the house with no walker. Now he wants me to come over to the playoffs. What's for dessert? What, I mean, it's really kind of mind boggling. So the very, the very last minute I changed it to dedicating it just to him, the human being, not him, the memory. So I'm, I'm very pleased that I can tell you that today. Wow. Uh, I hope he has many, many more years of health and happiness. Uh, uh, well, thank you, Charles. He's successful to have a son say, say those things about his father. He's a successful man right off the bat. Uh, That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. And I, I, I can only hope that one of my kids will say that about me someday, but that's it. Just, he's giving a, a high bar to, <laughs> to, to cover. So how have you taken some of the things your father taught you? I know this is off the topic just a, just a tad, but uh, how did you take some of the things your father taught you? And I, I think you told me you have, you have a, a few, few children, right? Uh, I, have, I have a daughter, 23, and a son, 17. And how did you take the lessons you learned from your dad and translate them to your kids? Well, I'm not sure that I did. I, I mean, I try to live up to what he was to me. I, I've been totally dedicated to my kids. I've taken them on trips. I've gone to all their sports activities. I've tried to be a part of everything they do. Um, 
And so my, my dad was, he, he was a, a modestly successful businessman. He had a small uh, insurance agency. Um, and so it's really not been about teaching me to be successful or teaching me to invest. He didn't do any of that at all. The only, the only piece of, uh, investment advice, if you want to call it that, is when I was in my early 20s, he, he asked me, I was living in Orlando at the time, he said, well, if you're going to stay there, I have a suggestion, and that is, it's a waste of money to rent. If, if you're going to stay there, just buy a house and build equity rather than renting. That's the only, only piece of financial <laughs> advice my dad ever gave me, which which I did, uh, did that. But I, I'll tell you this, this brief story, Charles, because it, it tells you a bit about how my mind works. He told me that I was 22 years old, and uh, Buy a house. Okay, great. Two problems. A, I didn't have any money for a down payment. And B, I had no credit. So nobody's going to lend me money. And if they, even if they did, I didn't have a down payment. And this was back in the early 80s when, um, you know, mortgage rates were 16%. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. No one could afford to buy anything. So I was in the bookstore one day and I read this book, or I saw this book and purchased it called How to Buy Real Estate with No Money Down. Oh, Robert Allen. And it, in the book, it, it was Robert Allen who wrote it, that book. Right, Robert Allen's book. It was 1982. So, so, I yeah, okay, so, so well, I'm actually talking 1982 is when I bought my house. So we're all it's exactly the same page, Charles. So in the book, I'm reading that if you don't have any money to put down and you don't have any credit, what you need to do is uh, arrange a contract for deed, have an attorney create a contract for deed, which just means that rather than having a typical closing where you have bank financing, that the seller provides the financing. And so I told the seller of this little townhouse that I found that, um, you know, if, if I, I didn't have the money for a down payment, but but, and I didn't have any, <laughs> I didn't have any credit to borrow money, but I would pay their mortgage payment. Um, and I would add, offer them the full price of the house. So I got the, his mortgage plus the second mortgage for what would have been the down payment. And I said to them, look, if I, if I go one month without making the payment on time, you can come in, take the house, keep all the money I gave you. I'll pay for any legal costs. If you need to get me out of the house, whatever, signed all this in the contract. So they had complete security, except no down payment. And so I had a three bedroom townhouse. I immediately moved two friends in. I had, I had a payment of $700 a month, which is all I could afford, but I had two buddies who paid $250 each. So I'm living in the master bedroom, building equity for the extra $200 a month. They're paying two thirds of the utilities alongside me. So I became a young capitalist at 22. With the, every, everybody's complaining, it's impossible to buy a house with interest rates sky high and no credit and no down payment. No, it's not impossible. You just have to think about it and be creative. And uh, I ended up selling that townhouse for a nice profit and then using that money to, to buy my next place. Wow, so wow. You, you never know. Outstanding. You know, my memories of that book was in 1983. I just started trading on the floor of the New York Futures Exchange. And after the trading day, I was going into the elevator to go to the clearinghouse where we cleared our trades. And they had a nice trader's lounge there. And I remember getting off the elevator and seeing the receptionist read that book. And I turned to a friend of mine who was a flat trader. I go, I was about 22. Well, I was, no, I was about 20 years old at the time, 20 or 21. And I turned to my friend. I said, we're close to the top of the real estate market. When the receptionist is reading a book on how to buy real estate for nothing down. I don't know. You, you were lucky because you were in Orlando. I remember reading that and I'm saying I'm in New York. There is no way any seller is going to give me anything, well, you know. Well, one of the things Robert Allen pointed out in the book is the only way that's going to be successful is you have what he called a don't wanter. The, I, this, the guy who sold me the place was a merchant marine 
he, he was leaving town. He didn't want to have to make a payment on that and then payment to live someplace else. He just wanted to bail. And that's, that's the requirement. If you're going to buy something with no money down, the person who has the house really has to want to get rid of yeah. it. In New York at the time, there were 100 people standing behind uh, that, that uh, seller wanting to buy it. You oh, yeah? Know? Yeah, it, was, okay. it worked good in that. I, remember, <laughs> I, I just remember when, I, when, when, I see, when I saw at the time, everyone, and I remember the whole talk after the trading day where we yelled and screamed open outcry system trading futures for six hours plus, standing on our feet. We went into the trader's lounge to have coffee and some drinks and all. Uh, not alcohol, it was just regular drinks. And uh, everyone's talking about the real estate they're buying. I said, you know, I don't know much, but it can't be everyone is going to be making money. Markets don't work that way. And I remember right. the same thing in uh, 05. I went, uh, 2000, uh, 2005, I went, this, this is in the summertime, I went to have my, um, we, we went to our summer home in Jersey, and I was changing, I took my bikes, my kids' bikes to the um, bike repair shop, and I was changing the tires because they had flats. And the uh, owner of the store, after I started talking to him to change the flats, he gives me his card, and he says, if you know, you know, I just want to tell you if you want to buy a house or anything, here's my card. He was moonlighting as a real estate agent. And I said, <laughs> and I wrote an article about that in my newsletter in 2005, I can't call the exact top, but we're getting close to it. Yeah, it right. Was, uh, you, were, you, you know, it wasn't long it wasn't, before it all you know, came crashing down. And you know, I'm seeing that now. And you know, so you have you have really good insight into this because of uh, your subscriber base. And and I found the great thing about subscriber base is they tell you so much information. Uh, you right. have really uh, your research team is out there in the fields amongst all 50 states and internationally. So you're getting information firsthand on a weekly basis. I know my subscribers write to me on a weekly basis. I'm sure yours do the same. And what I'm seeing now a lot of is Bitcoin. Are you seeing the same thing with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not a Bitcoin fan, but, but obviously, uh, not only am I getting a lot of letters asking about Bitcoin, but then we have someone on staff who's constantly searching for words that investors are searching for. And as you can imagine, Bitcoin, cyber currencies, blockchain, that's what comes up over and over again. So uh, I don't know if I can talk a little bit about Bitcoin if you're interested in my thoughts. It's not, it's not really, I don't recommend Bitcoin, uh, but I, I'll give you my thoughts on it if you're interested. Shoot, I, I, you know, right off the bat when you're saying that, my thoughts and your thoughts are going to uh, coincide because uh, I just can't see how electricity plus a computer equals a currency. First, I don't understand <laughs> that. And secondly, I have a very simple Mizrahi rule to investing. If you don't understand the investment, you can't value it. If you can't value it, you have no business buying it. Yeah, uh, Charles, I'm, I'm with you 100%. It's, it's easy enough to lose money investing in things you fully understand, <laughs> to, to invest in things that you don't understand. Uh, or in this case, you wonder how anyone can understand them because I, I get it that the blockchain is a revolutionary uh, development and it's here to stay. I realize that cyber currencies are gonna be a part of our future. But, but when I asked the Bitcoin fans, what is it about this one particular currency? They all offer privacy. They all offer you know, strictly limited issuance, like 21 million coins is all Bitcoin can, can put out. Um, they all are unregulated by government and so forth, at least so far, since let's face it, Bitcoin is the preferred currency if you're a, uh, let's see, arms dealer, drug tra uh, trafficker, uh, human trafficker, heavy weapons dealer. Right. Right. Drug cartel. Anyway, it's used for a lot of unsavory activities. But why Bitcoin? All the other currencies do the same thing. They all say, well, it's it's the first. And I say, yeah, well, 
they have, they're the first and they have dominant market share, just like Motorola did with cell phones and BlackBerry did with smartphones and Miracle Online did with online access and Netscape did with web browsers. Um, and just being the first is not enough. And as you said, the, the, the Bitcoin has no fundamental value. Everything's got a market value, which is what someone's willing to pay for it. But then they also have a fair value, you know, a, a, a value that you can reach independently of whatever it's trading for in the market. Uh, an, intr- just an, an, an intrinsic value. An intrinsic value. Right. What's there is no intrinsic value to cyber currency. Yeah, and what I don't get. And when I don't get, and I've tried, and I've tried since uh, since 15, 2015, to figure this out. And I've asked so many people who are much smarter than me and know a lot more about uh, Bitcoin, electricity, mining them and everything. I asked them one question. Forget about trying to explain Bitcoin because I just still don't understand it. But I ask them one question. What is the intrinsic value of Bitcoin? Is it is $50,000 a good price, cheap price, expensive price? Is $1,000 a good price? Just give me the intrinsic value and how you figured it out. And I have heard, well, it's worth uh, zillions of dollars. So why aren't you selling everything and mortgaging your children and buying Bitcoin of such? And then you ask them, where's your money? And my money's in the bank in currency, in dollars, you know. So uh, I'm just not getting how anyone is buying this and saying I'm buying something with an intrinsic value of X and the price is selling way below that intrinsic value, and hence my yeah, yeah. profit opportunity. Yeah, it, Charles, we, we've seen this before. During, during the dot-com bubble of the late 90s, you had companies selling at stratospheric valuations. They didn't, not only did they not have earnings, they didn't have sales. They were managing, they were, they were valuing the company by web hits and eyeballs and future sales and earnings. Of course, the companies went bankrupt before they had any earnings, and a lot of them before they even had any sales. Um, and we saw it with uh, with... In the real estate bubble that you talked about, it you started saying it was overvalued in 2005, but it wasn't until 2008 the whole thing came tumbling down when people said real estate always goes up, they're not making any more land, blah blah blah. The same sort of thing. You know, the internet changes everything, and you know you're hearing the same kind of talk around cyber currencies and Bitcoin in particular. And and you, you, people aren't buying it because it's undervalued; they're buying it because it went up yesterday and last week and, and the month before that. And, uh, and they think it's going to be higher tomorrow and next month. And that's, that's all the, the rationale is going into it. And I, I know that some smart people like Elon Musk and others have put some substantial money into it. Although I will say Elon Musk didn't put one and a half billion of his own money in it. He put Tesla's money in it. Whether that was a smart move for Tesla shareholders remains to be seen. But anyway, uh, I, I, I'm not a Bitcoin advocate. And uh, listen, if you've made money, someone out there listing, trading Bitcoin, good. But, uh, you know, if I were you, I would get out while the getting is good. <laughs> see, see, that's something that I think most investors don't get. When I originally asked you what the um, number one thing that I think could change is, is a sea change with investors. For me, it was when I read um, uh, Graham and Dodd, uh, security analysis, and then Graham's mm-hmm. book on intelligent investing. It's this one thing. <laughs> right is that stocks are pieces of a business. Now, once you think about a stock as a piece of a business, that's a game changer. Because you're no longer looking at wiggles and jiggles on a chart. You're looking at Nike, sneakers I wear. Uh, You're looking at Walmart and Costco where I shop. I am now a partner with that business. And once you think of the business as a partnership with Jeff uh, Bezos, for example, I start thinking of things like profit, markup, sales, Instead of support, resistance, moving averages, and all sorts of things. 
Right. Yeah. And, and that's exactly my point about Bitcoin. You see, you and I know that a stock is not undervalued because it used to be $50 and now it's $30. $30. It's undervalued based on an independent analysis that you've made of what the business is worth. And what is that business worth? Depends on sales. It depends on earnings. Depends on market share. It depends on the direction of sales and earnings. It, de it depends on how defendable the market's profit, the company's profit margins are, how well it's managed, how much of a debt load they have, how how able, how strong they are to make it through a tough period or recession or something. There's all sorts of factors that can give you an independent valuation. And if it's trading for a lot less than that independent valuation, then you would say it's a buy. And if it's trading for a lot more than that valuation, you'd say, I, I wouldn't buy this or I would even sell it. So, so that's really the difference between what we're doing and what people who are just playing the momentum in these cyber currencies are doing. Well, I mean, look, Dogecoin is up something like 20 fold in 2021. It's, it's, it was a joke. It was, it is a joke. So I tell you, the, the, the scary thing about it, Charles, is th this couldn't happen in a period where we didn't have ultra low interest rates, where there's absolutely no attractiveness to cash or bonds. And the stock market is up almost 90% in the last 11 months. And there's a sort of euphoria going on. And, you know, just throw your dart out there and you'll hit something. And I mean, it's really a crazy way to invest. And I, I've got a feeling that a lot of these people are going to learn the hard way. It's so much easier to learn from other people's experience. As, as you said, from reading these books, I, I tell my readers, you don't have to make the dumb mistakes because I made all of them already. I can warn you. I can keep you from making the stupid mistakes. Um, you'll never be done making mistakes, but you don't have to make the stupid ones. And so I think people will look back and just like we laugh at the dot-com bubble and we laugh at the real estate bubble, we're going to laugh at the cyber currency bubble and Dogecoin up 20 fold in less than eight weeks. Um, and it's just a joke and people are going to get badly burned, but that's, that's how some people learn. I prefer not to. <laughs> and you know what? I think these, these kinds of booms uh, happen every seven to 10 years in a big way, in a big way. And I, I, I see the problem with a bubble is you don't know how far it can expand. So you, the problem is, you're always early if you're smart because you, you, you're getting out and you look foolish for the next year or two or sometimes even longer. Mm -hmm. I remember right. uh, tech stocks, 98, 99, it just looked silly. I remember Warren Buffett on the cover of Barron's at the end of 1999. It was the title was What's Wrong, Warren? And the article was <laughs> he's going to have a lot to explain to his shareholders at the 2000, May 2000 shareholder meeting because he missed the tech boom. And by the time that the meeting came, he looked like a genius. Simply he sidestepped it by not investing. He says, I don't understand it. So I, I think that right. that's something that um, investors, the average folk, they look at price and they don't understand or appreciate that it's attached to a value. And when it becomes too right. detached from that value, it blows up. Right. Right. Well, two, two quotes, Charles. Oscar Wilde said, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Mm -hmm. But I really like Warren Buffett's remark that price is what you pay, but value is what you get. <laughs> so some of these people who know exactly what they paid for, for their cyber currency, whether it's Bitcoin or something else, uh, the value of what they bought is yet to be determined. So, and, you know, I'm not saying it's not going to go to 100,000 before it goes to 10,000, but um, who, who, listen, I think that there's investing, there's trading, there's speculating, and then there's gambling. And, and I would just, I would call a cyber currency a gamble. And you can go to the roulette wheel at, at Bellagio and put your money on 27. And you know what? 
you might win big, or you could put it on red and you might win. But uh, is, is that speculation? No, that's, I think, just gambling. And that's what I'd say these, these cyber currencies are. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. But, you know, you pointed out how people thought Warren Buffett just didn't get it about the Internet bubble. He doesn't understand technology. He doesn't understand the Internet is the future. You, we, we should remind viewers who, who weren't following the markets in, the NASDAQ dropped 70%. The leading internet index of Internet stocks dropped 95%. So, you know, to look back and hear people say Warren Buffett really just didn't get it, you know, he got it. <laughs> and, and the funny thing about that is, not a funny thing, but the ironic thing was on the day the NASDAQ made its high in 2000 was the day that Berkshire Hathaway made a low. And that <laughs> changed over, real, I think it was March 14th or so, the day sticks out, March 14, 2000. That was the crossover. That's where right. if you sold NASDAQ at the high and bought Berkshire, your next five, 10 years would have been a hell of a lot better. Uh, yes, so, you know, yes. um, so let's get back to the average investor, right? So the average investor, and I won't even say the average investor anymore. I would say investors because these animal spirits even get into the, into the hedge fund world, into the institutional world. They get these animal spirits of watching things go up. It is, I, I think the hardest thing, and I forgot who said it, the hardest thing is watching your dumb brother-in-law or neighbor make more money than you doing something stupid. Right. Right. It, ha it happens. And uh, I had the same experience as you did. I, I was out of Internet stocks for the most part in late 1999. And I would go play tennis every morning with this group of investors. They're all sitting around the table between sets talking about their Internet investments. And they would look at me and they already knew I had gotten out. And they go, hey, Alec, how's your how your Internet stocks doing? And they all laugh. And they would do this every week. And of course, I was a professional money manager at the time. And to, and to have these people who knew very little about investing laughing about the fact that I didn't own these stocks. Uh, was was a little hard to take. And then, of course, the big bus came and I go out there one morning and they're all talking. They see me walk up and there. No one says anything. And I go, hey, guys, how are your Internet stocks doing? Well, if you could have heard what they said about me and for some reason, the horse I rode in on, um, it was it was kind of amusing. But, you know, that people get caught up in these things. And the fact that they were right for a few weeks or a few months convinces them that they're just right generally, and that's not always the case. Yeah, I'm seeing that now in the past several years of this bull market is that, and I've always remember this back from my early, early days when I was a floor trader, is don't confuse brains for a bull market. Right. And so many people, and I sometimes see myself when I look at my portfolio and the stocks that I'm recommending in my newsletter, Alpha Investor, I say, boy, I'm really smart. And then I just catch myself, wait a second, it's a bull market. <laughs> you don't have to be that smart. Right. right. It's, it's really, well, you're smart. You know, you know I, I, I would say that uh, I'm not as smart as my, someone who looked at my net worth might say, but I have at least made the right decisions. I, I have saved, I have invested in great stocks. I have held them long-term. I have cut my losses when things weren't working out. I have minimized my costs. I have tax managed my portfolio to keep the IRS at bay to the extent that I can. I've at least gotten the big questions right. And then I look back and I go, oh, I should have bought this. Oh, why didn't I ever sell that? You know, you, you're always going to look back and say you wish you'd done things differently. But as long as you get the big questions answered right, you're going to be fine. And that's, uh, that's something that, that the average investor should know. You know, that's something I have uh, on my desk and my planner every day. It's, I usually write a quote that I look at for the whole month. And uh, for this past month, I wrote down uh, Charlie Munger where he said, um, Warren Buffett's partner, one of the smartest guys on the planet, he said, avoiding stupidity is easier than seeking brilliance. 
<laughs> just, just a lot, there's a lot to that. Yeah, just don't make don't make stupid mistakes. And you know, you think about it for a moment. Is if you buy a well managed business with a rock star CEO in an industry with a tailwind, and you buy it at a bargain price, it's pre- and, and hold on and sit on your ass and hold it. It's pretty hard not to make money. Right. It's pretty. You're, you're the, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, Warren Buffett said that, that investing is not a game where the guy with the 150 IQ beats the guy with the 120 IQ. It's, it's not the guy who has the biggest brain. More often than not, it's the guy or gal who has the strongest stomach. Because if you can, if you can deal with the inevitable downtimes, because there, you know, there will be another bear market ahead of us and there'll be another bull market beyond that. But the, the question is, how do you deal with it? Are you, are you prepared going in and will you take the right actions going through? That will determine more than your genius, which most of us don't have, um, how you how your invest how your investments perform. And I think that's one thing that there's not much time spent talking about. And I know you do, and and I certainly do in my uh, my newsletter. As I talk about temperament in so many different ways, for many people, they should never be invested in the stock market because they don't have the right temperament. They don't know how right. to deal with losses. They flip out. They freak out. And when things go well, they get overly enthused and do the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I put my, uh, my father in that category when uh, he was alive several years back. It was more than several years, about uh, 2007, 2008. There was one stock, Fair, uh, it was uh, uh, Fairfax Financial, run by Prem Watson. And he was the Warren Buffett of the North, and they, they had the American share. They sold the, it was the ADRs, and I don't think it was the ADRs. It was just the, they were selling here in the United States. And I bought that, and I did really well with them over the years. And in their 10K, Prem wrote that he invested in, uh, in uh, swaps that should the real estate market go down, he's going to make a bloody fortune. So while all the blank was hitting the fan, Fairfax was going down in price where it should have been going up because there was right. over a billion dollars he made on those swaps. And my dad called me up, I think, close to the bottom of the market. I think it was the summer of 08, and the market bottomed out in the, uh, in the first quarter of 09. And he said, get me out of Fairfax. I said, Pop, I'm buying. This is a joke. It's a dollar bill trading for 50 cents. Get me out at any price. He got him. I got him out at any price. And then years later, he always reminded me that it was my idea to do it. Which, uh, <laughs> I, you know. yeah, uh, there's an old saying that you you want to make uh, friends of your clients, not clients of your friends right. and, and family. That is especially true. No one wants to go to Thanksgiving dinner and hear about investment yeah. that didn't pan out. <laughs> but, but he was he definitely had the wrong temperament. And then we had a great relationship on afterwards. I said, look, if I'm going to manage your money, I need you not to look at it. And if you do look at it, never let me know about it. So he uh, used to look at it and never let me know about it till once in a while when something would happen, you know, market would go down. I'd say, Dad, remember our deal? And uh, thank God, over time, we bought Google at about 150 or $200 a share and just never sold Good. a share. Uh, Good. Um, and Berkshire Hathaway, mm-hmm. we bought just a couple. And, and thank God, the portfolio did absolutely well with very little involvement from me. It was just making a couple of good decisions back 10 years ago. And that was it. Right. Well, you know, I used to be in the money management business and this is, this was way, I was in the industry long before anybody had internet access for, there was an internet. And uh, so it used to be that people would start calling up after statements went out. Now everybody's watching their stocks bounce around in real time on the internet, but uh, the statements would go out and uh, people would be horrified that they're, that they lost 
tens of thousands or in the case of larger accounts, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a single quarter or month, if, if, for instance, in the stock market crash of 87. And what people didn't seem to realize is they, and they put in their mind the highest mark that their account ever reached. And th that's how they calculated how much money, not that their portfolio went up and up and up and up and, up, and then it came down, but that they had lost all this money they used to have. And they, they imagined that the temporary paper losses were real, actual losses. And I told them, like, we can make them actual losses, but I wouldn't recommend that. I would recommend that you buy while things are cheap, whatever. Buy, are you kidding me? And throw good money after bad? I mean, really, after a while, that's why I was happy to leave the business. I, the people who, who would take my advice and follow it um, would make money. I was making money. They were making money. Um, but people who, every time there was a break in the market, they wanted to go to cash. And then at the end of the year, they'd call me up and say, no, this account really isn't doing that well. And I go, yeah, because I tried to talk you out of cash when the market was down, but you said no. So, um, you know, it's, it's tough. People, and what they're doing, it's not that these people are dumb. It's that they're emotional and they can't help, but they, they feel like they want to do something. They, they're just like they're, when people see the market going up, they just think there's no limit to how high it's going to go. Then they see it's going down. There's no limit to how low it's going to go. I'll get out. I'll, I'll, I'll get in later when things look better, you know, like they always do at the market bottom, right, Charles? Yeah. And, <laughs> so, and, and by the yeah, way, and, and they ring a bell and let you know when to get back in, right? Yeah, right, of course. <laughs> it's that easy. Well, you know. listen, I, I took my knocks in the early days as well. When I started as a stockbroker in 1985, um, I was so upset that uh, that my firm's strong buy recommendations weren't doing that well. And I and I, I couldn't understand why these people who seemed so smart and they knew so much jargon and 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 every detail about what was going on really didn't, their ideas weren't all that great. And so what I did was I, I was a subscriber to the wall street journal. I was constantly reading about Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and John Templeton. And I just decided to forget about my firm's recommendations and do the same sorts of things that these guys were doing. And, um, and, and they all said the same thing. Buffett, even though Buffett's a value guy, Lynch was a, a growth guy and Templeton when he was alive was a global guy. They all said the same thing. And that was, they didn't know what the economy was going to do. They didn't know what the stock market was going to do, but they knew how to identify a business that was selling for less than what it was worth and hold it until the market recognized that value. That's, that's what they all had in common. And so I just started following their path. And well, as you might expect that, that worked. It worked. My firm's my first my recommendations didn't, and their, their ideas did. So that's what I stuck with. You, you know, and I've taken into my writing now. I'm, a lot of what I'm doing, even in my book, The Gone Fishing Portfolio, I start from that basic premise. I'm not going to tell you what the future holds because I don't know, and neither does anyone else. Um, and so I'm not ashamed to say that. And I often say that the day that you say to yourself that, that no one can tell me what the economy and the market are going to do. So how should I run my money? That's the day you become a sophisticated investor. Because to the extent that you're saying, I see the market doing this and I see the economy do it. And this sector is going to outperform that sector. And within that sector, this stock can outperform that stock. That, listen, those people are so far from where they should be as far as having a disciplined approach to investing that it's no wonder that they struggle. And uh, I wish I could help them all. I, I really, I do. I don't even want them to pay a dime. I wish I could just help them. But people have so many misconceptions and emotional responses and hot tips from their golf pro and their 
Arbor and whatever. <laughs> it's just hard to get them all straightened out. So, um, so I'm, I'm happy that I've, I've helped a lot of people. Charles, you probably had this experience. When someone comes up to me at a conference and shows me their statement and shakes my hand and says, thank you, you have made me a millionaire. That is the best feeling, you know, because I, it's great that um, I make a lot of money as a financial writer because I'm actually doing what I love to do, which is, is trying to figure out the challenge of the markets. But the fact that you can help so many people reach financial independence and live the life of their dreams and make the kind of choices as to where they want to live and what they want to do and who they can help and so whatever, that's just the best feeling. And it's what drives me on because, I mean, I've been doing this now for over 35 years and I don't have to work if I don't want to, but I, I love what I do. I'm constantly challenged and stimulated by what's happening in the markets and, and driven by the idea that I can help other people too if they can just follow a system that's based on proven investment principles and that has worked in good times and bad. And that's, that's what I consider my mission now. No, outstanding, outstanding. And I just want to touch on one point that you brought up. Even if you're buying a stock, a piece of a business, and it's a company that you like because you do business with them. I'm using an example, Costco. Everyone can understand Costco. Everyone can understand McDonald's. You don't have to be a genius to figure those businesses out. Even if you buy a business that is financially stable with a great CEO, uh, in an industry that's continued to go, even if you pay a high price, over time, you're still going to do well. And I right. think I've seen over years they've showed uh, that if you bought Coca-Cola from 1919 to present, every time it made an all-time high, meaning you bought it at the worst possible time, you'd still be up millions of dollars on that one share. Right. You won't be right. up as much as that, but you don't have to time the market. Just buy financially sound yeah. companies because the thing is, you never want to go back to go. If you buy a company right. with shaky financials, it has the greatest story, they could go bust. But if you buy right. a business that's financially sound, even if you're wrong about a whole bunch of factors and your timing is off, and whatever happens, a financially sound business is like being on the Queen Mary versus a rowboat. You're going to get to the right. other side. It might be slower, <laughs> but you're going to get to right. the other side. Right. No, if you have patience and discipline, it's going to happen. In fact, I've seen lots of studies that, that showed what the difference between the best market timer in the world and the worst market timer in the world, the best market timer in the world, he bought into the S and P 500 every year, but he bought it at the low point each year. And then the worst market timer bought the S and P 500 at the highest point every every year. Well, it turns out that over periods of decades, instead of earning the 10% annual return, the best market timer who bought on the very lowest day of the year earned about 11 and percent on their money. And the worst market timer who bought on the highest point every year earned about eight and a half percent on their money, which is still compared to being in bonds or cash or real estate or even gold, uh, except for those periods when it's spurting higher, um, you did better being the worst market timer in in stocks, provided, of course, your market timing doesn't involve actually selling out of stocks, that kind of market timing where you try to be in for the rallies and out for the corrections, that can cost you more than any other mistake you can make. But uh, the people who just bought great companies, had patience, had discipline, and held on have done very well. Yeah, you know, uh, investing is simple, but not easy. The simple part is figuring right. it all out. The, the part that's not easy is having the right temperament, having the right emotional makeup. And if you don't have the right emotional makeup, buy a treasury bill because you have to realize, and I think people don't realize this, is that if you don't have the right temperament, you're not gonna get rewarded the same way the person who has the right temperament has. That's you're just right. the way it works. 
right? There's a guy by the name of Morgan Housel wrote a book called uh, The Psychology of Money. And he said that the, if he had to, to name what he thought would uh, lead to the greatest success, he says it's having like an Asperger's-like detachment from what's happening in the market. And that's a great way of looking at it. I actually take it a little further than that. Uh, I, I actually one of those weirdos who when things are collapsing like they did uh, in the first quarter of last year and in the stock market crash of 87 and every other sell-off we've had, I actually get excited and start wondering like, what, what, who is throwing the baby out with the bathwater here? And I get more and more excited and, uh, and I'm, I'm actually thrilled because I have this conviction, as it sounds like you do too, Charles, that ultimately things are going to return to normal and prices are going to go up and the people who buy, I mean, you can look at a long-term graph of the market, where are the best buying opportunities? Everybody would circle the, the, the downtimes. But then as someone who actually handled many hundreds of people's money as a money manager, I, I was doing my best to keep them, just to keep them to hang in. Buying something while the prices were down was out of the question. Can I get them to hold on? <laughs> that, that, was the, that was the hard part. So, so yes, being unemotional, uh, in your actions and rational in your thoughts uh, as far as investing is is the great starting point for everything you're going to build. Well, you know, you, you can't have good equity prices, cheap equity prices, and good news. They just don't work together. You no. have to have bad news, and then you have good equity prices. Right. Because when... And, and, no, go ahead. Let me just say, Charles, everybody, if I would sit down with my clients and I go, look, in the future, we're going to have a sell-off. And when we have a sell-off, we're going we're to see the best buying opportunities. And people would say in the abstract, oh, absolutely. If prices sold off, I would step up and I'd be a buyer. Here's the thing they never get. It's always a different reason. You know, when in the bear market of 1990 was because Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. There was going to be a huge war in the Middle East. No one wanted to buy anything. There was the, the tech wreck in the mid-90s. There was the, the collapse of hedge fund of uh, long-term capital. There was the dot-com bust. There was 9-11. There was the housing bust. There was the pandemic. Each time people go, well, I thought something bad might happen, but not this, because each time it's something different. And just like the, the next time the market goes down, it'll be something we're not in. Maybe it's a cyber attack or who, who knows what it is. And they'll go like, well, I never thought this would happen, so I'm not going to buy in this instance. But that's what they say. What surprised me, Charles, is the very same people who didn't buy during the crash of 87 wouldn't buy during the bear market of 1990. Over and over again, they told themselves, not now. This is this. I'll wait till things get better. As if when things get better, the prices are going to be any better. Of course, they're not going to be. But you know what? You're spot on because it's always going to be slightly different. And if you look for a reason not to do it, you'll always find one. The market will always accommodate you with something. You'd always hang your hat on something. And I think one of the best examples that I've seen uh, in the past 40 years of doing this was the COVID uh, bear market where mm -hmm. the market just cascaded down. I think in 33 days, it lost a third of its value or some crazy number, right. like the shortest bear market in history. You blinked and that thing yeah. was down third. A third of the capitalization of the New York Stock disappeared. And right. I, I looked and I just kept saying, my gosh, you know, this problem is going to be solved, this pandemic. And I'm in New York and it was really terrible. We were having a really terrible time of it. Uh, friends, uh, people that we knew very close were dying. We were uh, taking the Javits Center, returning that into a hospital. They were, they were stacking up. It was terrible before the rest right. of the country. And I said, well, in five years, this will not be a problem. In three years, it's not going to be as big a problem. And right. I told my subscribers in my own portfolio, just stay put. This will pass. Right. This will pass. Right. And for those people that did sell because they flipped out and they freaked out, 
uh, they missed out on one of the greatest moves up, uh, I think, in history. Right. Well, you, you know, if you, if you think back to a year ago when, when everything was coming apart at the seams right about now, um, we actually had a lot of bad information that the, the, the virus came out of China and the reports were that the mortality rate on people over 70 was 13%. I mean, that was much higher than it turned out to be. We also thought it was much more transmissible. Remember when you're supposed to wear plastic gloves in the grocery store to even pick up food items with packaging? Um, and, well, how about, uh, how about when, when people pass by you in the street, you know, the air droplets could hover for 20 or 30 right. seconds before, forget about <laughs> gravity not working, but, you know, a whole bunch right. of other things like that. And, and, and then they, they, they said that uh, the experts, the, the COVID experts told us it would, you know, it ordinarily takes 10 years for a vaccine. We're looking at least two years here. I don't know if you know this, Charles, but Moderna, which was a recommendation in my insider alert service, they actually created the vaccine within two days of China posting the genome of the virus online. So it was actually ready in two days, had to be, had to go through the gold standard of, you know, double blind, randomized placebo trials. Uh, So nine months later it gets approved and which goes back to something I've been saying for years is, do you think in the future we're going to wait 10 years for a vaccine anymore? We know what can be done if, if we need to do it, we're going to have so many new medical advances, new pharmaceuticals, new medical devices that come out of this because the science moved forward so rapidly in the science of genetics and, and um, what, we're, what we're doing uh, with new pharmaceuticals and, and vaccines. So, um, so the bounce back came from the fact that people were overly pessimistic. They thought the mortality rate was much higher. They, stopped, they thought the virus was much more transmissible. They thought the vaccine was going to be years away. And uh, you, you probably read the book, The Wisdom of Crowds. Charles, are you mm-hmm. familiar with this? Yeah, book? sure, sure. It talks, it, it talks about how um, when uh, the Space Challenger, uh, the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up in 1986, how uh, initially all the contractors for the shuttles, their shares you know, Im- immediately died. But by the end of the day, the only stock that was down substantially was Morton Thiokol, which is the one that made the O-rings that were responsible for the, for the engine blowing up. Uh, and, and why was it? How could all these people who were not scientists, not researchers, no investigation had even begun? It's because of the wisdom of crowds. People realized in the aggregate that it was most likely that Morton Thiokol was to blame. And, and investors realized, looking at this vaccine, not being geneticists or molecular scientists or researchers, they realized that it's not as bad as it looks. It's going to get better sooner than it looks. And it, the rebound came. Everyone thought it was a dead count cat bounce or a bear market rally, whatever. And now here we are 11 months later and the market's up almost 90% from there. So I, I call it the, the triumph of the rational optimists, which I, I count myself as one of them. <laughs> yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, all right, Alex, the name of the book, uh, The Gone Fishing Portfolio, Get Wise, Get Wealthy, and Get On With Your Life. Fantastic. Uh, I wish you lots of luck. This book uh, recently came out again, available on Amazon. It's the second edition. Uh, revised and expanded with a new forward by Bill O'Reilly. New, really nothing new here in a sense. You just updated a few things because the approach and your methodology is still the same. Just be rational and and buy intelligently. Right. That doesn't go out of style. Yeah, no, the the essence of the... uh of the strategy is, as I said, you can't know for certain what the economy or what the markets are going to do. And so the strategy is simply to, to invest in 10 different non-correlated asset classes, which are represented by 10 Vanguard funds or ETFs. And so you 
you, you flesh out the asset allocation, as I describe in the book, and then once a year you rebalance, and the rest of the time you're encouraged to go fishing, which is spend your time traveling or playing golf or, or hanging out with your grandkids or whatever, whatever it is you like to do. Uh, and I, I don't suggest that this is the be-all and end-all of investing, but it's the foundation that you build on. And that way you know that your serious money is being handled in a serious way using a strategy that actually won the Nobel Prize in economics from Harold uh, Harry Markowitz uh, won the Nobel Prize for his paper about mean uh, portfolio optimization through mean variance analysis, which means invest in non-correlated assets so that when some assets are zigging, others are zagging, that reduces the volatility while still giving you good long-term returns. Yeah. So that's that's the essence. That's it. And just, uh, you know, just do what Charlie Munger says. Don't do something. Just stand there. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you don't have to do much. Uh, Alex sure. Green, uh, the Oxford Club, Oxford Communique, fantastic. I'll put a link in my description for your newsletter. Uh, well worth it. You have a free easing that investors could just, anyone could just sign up for. Just put your email address and get Alex's 35 to 40 years of wisdom, fantastic track record, and just good old-fashioned uh, insight into how things work. Alex, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it, man. Charles, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, We'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.